1: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about practicing positive psychology and mindfulness to build long-lasting, loving relationships. My first guests today are James Poelski and Susie pileggi Poelski. This episode originally aired in February of 2018. Let's get to that conversation. Dr. James Pawelski is a professor of practice and director of education in the Positive Psychology Center at the University of Pennsylvania, where he co-founded the world's first Master of Applied Positive Psychology program with Dr. Martin Seligman. The founding executive director of IPPA, which is the International Positive Psychology Association, he is leading research on The connections between the science of well being and the arts and humanities. His wife partner in crime is Susie. Pilegi-Powelski. She also has a Master's of Applied Positive Psychology degree from the University of Pennsylvania. She is a freelance writer and well-being consultant specializing in the science of happiness and its effects on health and relationships. Susie blogs for Psychology Today and writes the Science of Well-Being column for Live Happy, where she is also a contributing editor. And we're talking today about their new book, Happy Together, Using the Science of Positive Psychology to Build Love That Lasts. Welcome, you two. So happy to have you on the show, James and Susie. Thank you so much. We're excited to be here with you. Thank
2: you, Lisa. It's really a delight to talk with
1: you. Well, I want to celebrate something, not only the publish of your book, but also your anniversary. The book came out on your eighth anniversary, which I think is so cool, especially since it wasn't planned that way.
3: (laughs) Definitely. When we found out our first co-authored book was coming out on another momentous occasion of our wedding anniversary, it just blew us away. And I said to my husband, see, we
1: were meant to do this. (laughs) Exactly. And let's talk about relationships. Let's go right to the heart of the matter. What do people often get wrong about relationships or expectations in relationships?
3: I think we tend to focus on um, what's going wrong rather than what's going right. We all have, you know, small annoyances in our relationships maybe that bother us, but if we're focusing and dwelling on those things rather than finding all the great, wonderful things to celebrate, then we're not going to be happy.
1: And isn't that the cornerstone of positive psychology, right? It's focusing on what's right with life rather than the traditional psychological model where we catch about what's wrong.
2: Absolutely. So mainstream psychology focuses on what's wrong with people and how to correct it, which, of course, is important. Positive psychology focuses on what's right with people and how to cultivate it, which is also important. And we find a lot more fun.
1: And when you talk about the relationship gym in the book, talk to us a little bit about what it means to be emotionally fit and in these healthy relationships.
3: I think that's a great question. Well, we like to talk about um, the relationship gym because when we were, you know, thinking about this book and putting it together, we thought, how come like in other aspects of our life, like let's say physical health, uh, none of us expect just to buy a membership to a gym and maybe go once and think I'm going to have a fitter, stronger, more flexible body overnight. I mean, that would be ridiculous, right? Like you're out of shape, you buy your membership, and now suddenly I'm going to, you know, have vitality and fitness. No, what do you do? You go to the gym uh, several times a week. It's a lifetime habit. You practice routines. You know, when you get bored, you kind of have some novelty, and you work on things. So how come in relationships – you know, our mindset is more that we focus on finding that perfect person who's going to, you know, magically appear in our lives and we're going to live happily ever after. So James and I were talking about, it should be more of like a relationship, gym where yes, you find someone and then you work on building strength and flexibility, emotional flexibility, strengthening your relationship and cultivating those healthy habits that are going to build more of the things and the positive qualities you want in your relationship.
1: And where does one's own emotional fitness come into play here? In other words, I think what I'm trying to say is if you're not the kind of person that you want to date yourself, then you need to kind of get busy working to improve those areas that make you a better, more likable, enjoyable, fit partner.
2: Absolutely, Lisa. So this book is a book for folks at any stage of the relational journey. It can be a great workout guide. For those who are in a relationship now, it can also be a great workout guide for those who are not in a relationship now, just like, again, going to the gym it can be fun to do with someone else. It, it also can be fun to do uh, if you're just trying to get fit, you know, on your own before you uh, connect with others. So oftentimes people, I mean, I used to think uh, in this way myself that, you know, I would be rescued by a relationship, and so at some point, there would come along this perfect person, probably accompanied by lightning and thunder, perhaps, and it would be this perfect soulmate that would kind of absolutely magically transform everything about my life, and, and I would live happily ever after, and I think that's a very common myth that, you know, we read about in fairy tales and, 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 and in the media and so forth, and so the idea is, again, that this just happens. Yeah. Fortunately, I was also subject to other perspectives that I think are much more mature and much more realistic, and that is that relationships involve skills just like any other human endeavor. And if we sit around passively waiting to be rescued in some way or for the perfect relationship to happen, then it's much less likely for us to take the initiative and to work on ourselves and to develop our own relationship skills, which will be crucial when that time comes when we may, may enter into a relationship. So it's these skills uh, of relating to others are important for us to develop across the spectrum, across our life course, and in this book in particular, we're talking about uh, the application of those skills in the context of romantic relationships. But again, you can start doing that before you're in one or after you've been in one that didn't turn out so well, and this might help you learn how to develop skills to have more success next time.
3: So he talked about building skills, and one way to do that, if you want specific things, uh, listeners, um, is finding out what your strengths are. So in positive psychology, researchers looked across cultures, time, and they found that there are 24 strengths that have been valued. And things like creativity, uh, love of learning, leadership, social intelligence, and we all have these strengths in unique configurations, you know, and based on our personalities and contexts, it's what makes us, you know, different from one another. And the wonderful thing is you can find out what your top strengths are. They refer to them as your signature strengths by taking a free test. It's called the VIA survey. And we have a link to that on our website, which is Build Happy Together. So once you take this test and you find out uh, what your top strengths are, then you can start practicing them and doing exercises, having conversations with your partner. And we like to suggest, for instance, um, practicing those strengths by going on a strength date. So if, for example, a top strength of yours is like zest um, and your partner's maybe love of learning, that's a personal example, uh, you could set up a date where uh, you're going to both use those strengths. So for us, we rented uh, Segways and we did a historical tour of our city. And so at the end of the day, you know, my sense of adventure was satisfied and James's love of learning uh, interest was peaked.
1: This is great. This is a a wonderful example. We're going to take a break in a minute and we'll continue the conversation. But before we go, I want to go back to your point about soulmates. Do the two of you believe in soulmates?
2: So, yeah, I think we definitely, in our own ways, Uh, subject to our own uh, influences, um, believed in soulmates growing up, it doesn't mean that we don't believe in romance anymore now that we've modified those views. And soulmates can mean a lot of different things. And so for some people it just means a way of connecting deeply, and we're certainly not against deep connections. But I think sometimes the notion of a soulmate can be understood in this kind of a passive uh, way that, you know, I I don't have any control over my life and it's fated uh, to meet somebody who will then just magically appear in my life and magically transform things. And that we link up to fairy tales where the happily ever after just kind of happens automatically as opposed to real life where it takes some work and effort.
1: And I also think that, you know, when you use the soulmate example, there may be many in our lives, right? We have different relationships at different points in our lives based on different needs.
3: I think that's that's great. And right. I think you need to focus on, you know, choice and what is it that you're looking for. So James and I like to say in our book, I know we talk about we refer to pop culture and we use movies as an example. So we think a better approach than soulmate is you compliment me rather than you complete me. You know, we're all aware of that <laughs> famous line from Jerry Maguire, you complete me. But what about you compliment me? So, here are my strengths, here are yours, and together we can help each other become better individually. And through our collective strengths, we could create something and become something better than our individual parts.
2: And you're right, Lisa, that we want to be careful about trying to limit our relational lives only to our spouse or our significant other. One of the marks of a mature relationship is, is having a wide breadth of friends and connections and so forth. So, we want to have a full richness of deep connections across our relational spectrum, and so many of the, so much of the research and so many of the exercises in this book can help with that as ways of complementing our relationship, our, our romantic
1: relationship. Well, we're going to take that break, but right now you are most definitely both making my heart sing to learn more about Happy Together, using the science of positive psychology to build love that lasts, co-authored by Dr. James Powelski and his lovely bride, Susie pileggi Powellski, Please visit buildhappytogether.com. On Twitter, you can connect with both of them at HappyTogetherBK. And on Facebook, Build Happy Together. Hang on just a second. Before we head out to the break, let's chat a little bit about beauty and BHDs. What I mean by that is bad hair days. If you're anything like me, you take pride in your self-care, but don't have a lot of time to muss or fuss about getting salon quality products. What if you could order custom shampoos and conditioners that are formulated just for you and then have them delivered right to your doorstep? That's where today's sponsorship partner, Function of Beauty, steps in to save the day by turning your BHDs into great hair days. I'm super excited to share this product with you. Function of Beauty has a nifty little quiz that helps identify your personal formula based on hair type, hair goals, and other preferences such as color and scent, or go dye-free and fragrance-free. These products are so personalized they even have your name on the bottle. Function of Beauty is safe. All natural, vegan, and cruelty-free. I love the results, which have tamed and nourished my fine and wavy tresses. My personal formula is color-free and filled with aromatic eucalyptus that makes me feel like I'm having a spa staycation with each use. Function of Beauty never uses sulfates, parabens, or any other harmful ingredients. And here's the best part. Listeners of Harvesting Happiness will receive 20% off their first order – Head on over to functionofbeauty.com happiness to take the hair profile quiz and get great hair days ahead. Once again, that's functionofbeauty.com happiness to get 20% off your custom formula that's as unique as you are. Now here's the break. We'll be right back. And that is a guarantee.
0: To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit harvestinghappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services.
1: Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this episode. Why? Because sharing is caring. It's kind, free, legal, available 24 seven. And we're talking about practicing positive psychology and mindfulness to build long lasting and loving relationships. My guests today are Dr. James Poelski and Susie Pileggi Powelski. This episode originally broadcast in February of 2018. Let's go back to that conversation. Let's talk about the ancients for a minute, guys. Let's go back to the beginning and talk about Aristotle, because you mention him quite a bit in the book. And what the heck does Aristotle have to do with
2: relationships? (laughs) Well, Lisa, I'm a philosopher, so any place, any way I can sneak in a philosopher, I try to do that. But in this context, it's actually also related to the topic, believe it or not. So Aristotle wrote in the Nicomachean Ethics that human beings love three things. We love what is useful. We love what is pleasurable, and we love what is good. And he said there are relationships, kinds of friendships that correspond to that. So we all have friends that uh, we're friends with them because it's useful to have that friendship. So let's say partners getting together to found a company to make a lot of money. Or we also have friends that we hang out with because it's just pleasurable to do so. We like to get together with them, maybe go out on the weekends, and so on. And Aristotle says there's nothing wrong with those kinds of friendships. They're great and important. And he says there's a third kind of friendship that's even more important, and that's a friendship of virtue, where you're attracted to the other person because of the goodness you see in their character. And that can actually inspire you to want to become a better person as well. So that's the philosophy. And then Susie had a very interesting <laughs> tweak on this at our, on our honeymoon, which we were at Exactly, eight years ago right
3: now. So, eight years ago, lying on the lovely uh, beaches of St. Lucia on our honeymoon, my husband and I were talking about Aristotle because isn't that what everybody does on their honeymoon? Absolutely, <laughs> I <think> so. <laughs> so, we were having this conversation, and I said to James, why did Aristotle have to limit this notion just to platonic uh, relationships? What if we took it up a notch and we applied um, his thinking to our relationship to our marriage. So instead of just being lovers, we became Aristotelian lovers, seeing the goodness in one another and working together to to help one another become better individually and better as a team. And what if we made that sort of, you know, our goal for our marriage? I love it.
1: I I really love it. (laughs) And and with Aristotle, I mean, the, his philosophy really speaks to knowing oneself. I mean, isn't that probably the most famous quote, know thyself?
2: Yes, that was a, a quote, actually, that was well known at that time. And so the Oracle at Delphi, for example, was written uh, there, know thyself, was an important directive of the Greek world. And Aristotle certainly builds on that and helps us to know ourselves. Oftentimes, the perspective, again, in relationships and and just in life in general, is we tend to find it easier to know our deficiencies, our problems, and what positive psychology encourages us to do, although it's important to certainly to know where we need to, you know, shore up our weaknesses, but it's just as important to know ourselves from the perspective of our strengths. What do we do well? What are our passions? And with regard to a relationship, not to lose sight of you know, at the beginning of a relationship, it's, obvious, it's, it's often very easy to know uh, what is good in the other person and what is good in the relationship. And as we move forward in the relationship, it's important to uh, be intentional about observing the good in the other person and continuing to help it grow and continuing to help it grow in our own lives. You know, if we're looking for the perfect relationship, there actually isn't any such thing as a perfect relationship. The word Perfect actually comes from two Latin words that mean thoroughly done, so maybe if one rela- if one partner or the other is, is done with a the relationship, then you know it's perfect in the sense of being over. but as long as both people are involved in the relationship, it gives us an opportunity to grow and learn and practice our strengths
3: and I think it's interesting because in the beginning of the relationship, you think of the first couple. Dates and the honeymoon phase, you're very curious about your partner, right? And and their strengths are coming out and you're focusing on them. But often, a lot of people fall into a rut and unhealthy habits, and you're no longer seeing the differences as strengths, but rather than deficits. And you have to remind yourself, um, just because a partner may lead with the different strengths. Like I mentioned, I have more zest and James might be more analytical thinking in the beginning I might have loved that and said oh my philosophical husband's helping me slowly think through these problems how wonderful and bright is he years into the relationship when I'm trying to move fast and make a decision he's being so persnickety he's driving me crazy why is he purposely you know annoying me so you could see how you could flip on from something that was different um, and a strength into a deficit and if you continue doing that And forget to see your relationship through a lens of positivity you know that's not the best thing so we have to remind ourselves of those strengths that we fell in love with in the beginning
1: when you talk about skills that can be used to maintain the vitality and appreciation of the relationship in the book you talk about gratitude's role share a little bit more about that
2: yeah that's a great point so gratitude is something that we are increasingly learning about, the importance of gratitude. It's also important not just, to, not just to feel gratitude, but to express gratitude and to express it well. So research indicates that even more important or even more effective than telling our partner how what they have done has benefited us is telling our partner how much we appreciate them for being them. So you talk about the goodness, the character in your partner, and you express your gratitude that way. Just as important, of course, is how we receive gratitude. So that's why we like to talk about this as a gratitude dance. If one partner initiates a gratitude dance by expressing gratitude, but the other person deflects the gratitude, oh, no worries, it was nothing, or hot potatoes it back, oh, and I like you too because you did this and this and this, or discounts, so these are all the reasons why what we... um, you know, why you're, why you're thanking me, I, I didn't do such a great job after all. Those are ways that the, the relationship, the, the gratitude dance actually doesn't go so well. So initiating gratitude is important, and responding to gratitude well is also important. Just starting by saying thank you, a deep, genuine thank you while looking your partner in the eye can go a long way. And then maybe, Susie, you want to say something about how we can take this even further from the standpoint of savoring.
3: Sure, so accepting it and really paying attention to those moments and letting it, you know, let thanks permeate um, through your body and maybe taking it a step further by asking questions. What was it about that specifically that resonated with you? How can I do more of that? And then you're engaging in a back-and-forth conversation and you're increasing the upward spiral of positivity. You're not just strengthening your moment, your relationship in the moment, But you're also building psychological resources like emotional flexibility that research has shown can help bonds over time.
1: I loved you use the word savoring because we often think of savoring solely for food. But you're saying that we take it to the relationship, that we savor those good moments when people are appreciating us and being able to receive it and say thanks and wanting to know more, to be curious, inquisitive and to kind of chew on it for a little bit, you know? hmm
3: Exactly.
2: That's right. So most of us experience a lot of very positive experiences over the course of the day, the week, the month, the year, but we tend to focus, you know, the last thing we think about before we go to bed is typically, what did I not get done today? Uh, or how come so-and-so said this to me, right? And so if we can intentionally focus our minds on the things that did go well... It's not escaping from reality. It's actually escaping to reality. These are the things that actually have happened in our lives. And by savoring them, it's kind of like turning up the volume on the good things in our lives.
1: Well, it's kind of like wherever you focus your attention, you'll find yourself, right? So if you focus Mm -hmm. and savor on those positive qualities of yourself and your relationship and the goodness that's happened in the day, you're more likely to become more elevated.
2: That's exactly right, and the more you use moments of gratitude or other kinds of connections, as Susie mentioned, to engage in conversation with your significant other, the more you're likely to learn about what makes them tick, about what they appreciate, what works for them, and so it can also be an an upward spiral, because the more you marinate in that, the more you learn about it, the more expert you become in not just appreciating what has happened in the past, but in preparing and augmenting what is happening in the present and the future.
3: It's like compounded interest. It That's right. helps yeah. you in the moment, and it builds a stronger future.
1: Happiness squared. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> How about the golden rule? Is that really all you need to be happy together? Uh, we don't really believe in the golden rule. <laughs> Go ahead. My well, philosopher so, husband, of course,
3: wants to jump in here. We think the golden
2: rule is helpful, and so we certainly teach it to our seven-year-old son, uh, and but it also has its limitations. It's useful to, as an approximation, to think, okay, well, what do other people like? I don't like it when people take my toys, so I shouldn't take other people's toys. But the problem can be that we can get to the point of assuming that what I'm like on the inside is exactly what Susie's like on the inside. Yeah. Therefore, I don't need to be curious and ask her what she really wants and so forth. But in, if instead of doing that, we actually look and, and have those conversations to understand each other better, we're not making some of the false assumptions that can happen with the golden rule.
3: Because if we did unto others as we went uh, done to ourselves, we'd be sleeping with classical music every night. But my husband likes it very quiet. <laughs> and I, I like heavy music, and we'd be sleeping with the windows open. Well, that's what I like. Don't you like that? No. I like it quiet and dark and warm. Um, but so we, we've introduce uh, another rule in our book that we feel um, is probably more connected to building a happier bond long-term.
2: Yeah, so we all know the platinum rule, do unto others as they would be done unto, which also is helpful, and except our seven-year-old would like to play video games all day um, and eat cookies all day. So that doesn't always work. So we believe in the Aristotelian rule, which is, in brief, is try to help each other become the best version of themselves that they can. And so we can use insights from the Golden Rule and the Platinum Rule, but this takes it to another level uh, of challenge, and we think of effectiveness.
1: That's really beautiful, because it also brings in the service element, that if we're helping the person that we love become the, the best version or better version of themselves, we're, we're working to uplift another person, and that, in turn, makes ourselves feel happier.
2: That's exactly right.
1: Exactly. Here comes that break. We'll be right back, and that is a guarantee. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us now, we're continuing the conversation about practicing positive psychology and mindfulness to build long lasting, loving relationships. My next guest is Dr. Cheryl Frazier. And this episode originally aired in October of 2016. Let's join that conversation. My next guest is Dr. Cheryl Frazier. She is a Fulbright Fellowship award winning psychologist and sex therapist who combines academic credibility humor and straight talk to provide expertise for all manner of modern media. As a columnist for Mindful and Best Health magazine, she explores love, sex, relationships, meditation, and the human experience. Dr. Frazier has created the Become Passion Home Study Series and the Awakened Lover Weekend Intensive Boot Camp for Couples. She has a private practice in sex and couples therapy. And in addition, Cheryl's approach to life and to helping others is based in her practice of meditation and Buddhism, which she has studied for more than 25 years. She's working on a book about mindful sexuality, and I can't wait to talk with her. Welcome, Dr. Cheryl Frazier. Oh, thanks so much, Lisa. It's great to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. Let's talk about what mindful loving is and mindful sexuality.
4: Yeah, and mindfulness has become such a buzzword now. I think it's almost lost some meaning. So I just want to remind us all that what it actually means is to be really, really present and really experiencing what's really happening. That may sound obvious, but it's not at all. Usually we're uh, a bit of ahead of ourselves or behind ourselves. I mean, imagine playing with your niece or something. You're playing whatever you're playing with her, but are you really there? Are you really playing with your niece or are you off thinking of other things at the same time? Now in our love relationships and our sexuality, are we really there? Are we really experiencing this kiss? Maybe the way we did when we were 15 or 16, you know, making out for three hours where we weren't going to go below the chin for whatever good reasons that was. And all of our attention and all of our sensuality and all of our pleasure was deeply focused and concentrated on our lips and our tongues and that person. That's a little hint of how we used to maybe be mindfully sensual and how many, many of us have have, have forgotten that. And we kind of go through the motions in our love life, our romantic life and in our sexuality life.
1: You you make a very good point in that for many of us who have been in relationships for many years, long periods of time, and we go through the day to day and we are all challenged with stresses and the trials and tribulations of raising children, of of earning a living, of keeping a home, of uh, being connected to our families, we easily can tend to lose that mindful approach to our love and our love making.
4: Yes, and it's a matter of can we actually slow down and show up and the beautiful thing there is, if I'm incredibly present in in a friendship conversation and certainly in a conversation or or touching or engaging in sensuality with a lover, it is very fresh, it's very new, and it's very very intense. So we can uh, With applying mindfulness and approach to really being present and calming our mind down and brightening our senses up, we can uh, experience whatever's happening much more deeply with our five senses, you know, much more alight. So in essence, I often share with people that it's a bit like being able to fall in love over and over and over again with the same person.
1: And and how do we do that? What are some strategies that we can put into play that help us view our partners and our lovers as um, from that new, fresh perspective or, or lens on a more regular basis?
4: Well, some of them may sound a bit funny, but I challenge people to try them out anyway. Um, one thing is to ask really big, open-ended questions. Go out for dinner or tea or whatever and ask each other Big questions like, you know, if you won $3 million today, what would you really, really want to do with it? Or if you had a year to live and you knew you were going to live entirely healthy until 364 days from now, what would be your top priorities? Or even if you were going to come back in time as a historical figure and live your life, what would you do? Now, those may sound a little bit silly, but what they do is they actually let you learn something new about your partner. And you may have been sleeping next to that person for 26 years. And uh, you don't know them very much at all. And- no, I just, gonna, just, I was just going to add. What, this is a great idea. Keep going. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um And this other one is really silly, but a whole heck of a lot of fun. And I like to ask people when I teach seminars or whatever, you know, how many people in here have ever had a dog and, you know, a lot of hands go up and how many people have ever known a dog and all the hands go up. And I say, okay, imagine this, uh, you're sitting down, you know, reading a magazine or whatever, and your sweetheart comes home at the end of the day and you hear their keys in the door and they come in the door. How do you greet them? And people kind of, you know, think about that. Well, you know, part two, you're a dog and you hear your owner's keys in the door, right?
0: <laughs> (laughs)
1: My tail is wagging right now. absolute hysteria
4: you know Lisa's home oh my lord my world has lit up everything is perfect <laughs> um and I, I actually get people to stand up and it is my favorite part of giving a talk anywhere is I get everybody to stand up and I play the song who let the dogs out and they all have to act like a dog whose owner has just walked in the room and everybody's laughing and goofy and and the guy that won the prize actually took his shoe off put it in his mouth and ran around the room so he got he got an extra prize for enthusiasm <laughs> well done fella um, but then, of course, I make a pretty simple point, which is how do you actually greet your spouse when they walk in the door, right? Um, often it's a grunt or a, hey, babe, you know, but do you actually get up and go to the door? Do you actually go give them an embrace? And I do say, you know, now and then, rock their world. Jump up and pretend you're a Labrador retriever, you know, get some playfulness back because it's a way of being mindful. It's a way of, in a way, recreating that thrill you felt when you were dating and you heard them knock at the door. You know, and you got a thrill in your body. You're like, oh man, they're here, and you went to the door. You beamed a smile at them, and so on. Right?
1: Oh, the dopamine surge was happening. You know, when you hear the keys go in the lock, you know, it's like here, here here comes pleasure, and I
4: want it. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. And the only thing that's changed is repetition and habit pattern. And that we have moved away from, from treating that moment as fresh, treating that moment as new, which in its essence, in practice, is what mindfulness is really about. This moment is new. This is the only breath we've ever had of this particular breath right now. This is the only touch, the only kiss, the only conversation about paying our mortgage that we've ever had in this present moment. And can we make it fresh and interesting?
1: This is very powerful. Very um simple. In theory and a little bit more challenging for many to practice. And and that's because it's 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 new, it's a little bit uncomfortable to say, but 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 I, I've got real world problems. There are things going on out there. And what I hear you suggesting is that we just quiet that, that we make an agreement with ourselves to temper that and place our attention on the only thing we know for sure right now.
4: That's a really lovely way to say it, actually, that idea of making an agreement with yourself. I appreciate you wording it that way. Uh, that leads to something that helps me help couples <clears throat> deal with the number one sexuality complaint in relationship after a while, which is one person's in the mood and the other one isn't. Uh, you know, number one, the most simple and, and, and deep uh, problem people have. And it's very similar to what you and know, I have just been talking about in terms of how to approach that I'm not in the mood problem. If partner one is really busy, they're making lunch and they're about to phone their kid's teacher to find out about a field trip or something, regular stuff, as you said, real real life. And partner comes up in an amorous mood and kind of gives an embrace from behind and kisses you on the back of the neck and says, hey, you know, you want to get frisky? Very often, the first partner says, no, I'm not in the mood. And everything comes to a screeching halt there, along with, you know, concomitant problems like rejection and feeling pressured and all that stuff. But it's because the person isn't able in that moment to make an agreement with yourself, to use your language, to say, well, right now I'm not turned on at all. I'm making lunch and thinking about the kid's teacher. But can I make an agreement with myself to pause and say, "Uh, not right now, babe, but give me a few minutes. And then work with your own mind, with mindfulness, and to finish making lunch. And if you're stressed and you're in your head and you're just not in your body, you're not feeling at all connected to your sensuality, you can take a little bit of time to transition. Maybe even go have a bath or a shower or make a date for later uh, that evening. But the difference is uh, I teach people to, quote, never say I'm not in the mood ever again. Instead, say, not right now, check with me in a bit. And it's a very different dynamic and it allows us to get our head in the game. And often, if people will get their head in the game, or frankly, if I could be a little bit more explicit, ask their partner to turn them on. Say, well, I'm not really in the mood, but go for it. Get to work. See what you can do to get my body <laughs> woken up. You know, that,
1: that's my favorite
4: answer. I'm not, I'm, answer. Not, I'm not really open for business, but you know, try me. See <laughs> what you can do, baby. See what you can do. <laughs> exactly. This works in either direction in any, you know, (laughs) heterosexual, bisexual, gay relationship, doesn't matter. It's, you know, well, I'm not really there, but see what you can do. Can you start the engines, right? So the head may still be worrying and thinking and absorbed in in minutiae. But if the partner's willing, the friskier partner in that moment is willing to say, okay, I'll put a little effort in here. Often the body will relax, start to become aroused. The mind can calm down and get in the game. And this is a huge, huge problem that can be resolved with a little bit of dedication and a willingness to take this different approach.
1: You know, and talk about you know these long term relationships that many of us have, and how um, interests may not be parallel at all times. I think you hit on something really important about that that art of seduction.
4: Yes, very much so. And again, what does it take to uh, invest in the art of seduction? We do it naturally when we're dating. It takes mindfulness, it takes paying attention, thinking about when I can see you this week, what I'm going to do to impress you, what I'm going to wear, you know, all that stuff we did when we did. We know how to do this, is the point. We know how to do it. We
1: know how to do it. It's embedded. We're going to need to take a break. And when we come back, I want to talk more about love, sexuality, the art of seduction, mindful loving. To learn more about Dr. Cheryl Frazier, please visit her website, www.drcherylfrazier.com. On Facebook, that page is Dr. Cheryl Fraser with a hyphen between each word. And on Twitter, the handle is at Dr. Cheryl Frazier. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. And that is a promise.
0: Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life A Boot Camp Manual for Greater Emotional Fitness is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more.
1: We're talking about practicing positive psychology and mindfulness to build long-lasting, loving relationships. My guest today is Dr. Cheryl Frazier, and this episode originally aired in October of 2016. Let's rejoin that conversation. So, Cheryl, prior to the break, we were talking about the art of seduction and how it is lost in the day-to-day of our lives. Yes. And I think here we can talk about seduction uh, outside of the bedroom
4: and then within the bedroom really briefly, which is outside of the bedroom. It's those moments of attention. You know, there's some terrific research. John Gottman's a terrific marriage researcher. And uh, what he finds is one of the seven main things that predict a great long-term relationship is that each partner feels appreciated. It's so simple. That's why I like his work. It's intuitive. And uh, what that means is somehow our partner lets us know that they appreciate Appreciate us on a regular basis. And we let them know that in whatever currency, in whatever way works for them, it might be a touch, it might be a note, it might be an attaboy, whatever it is. So that's a type of uh, seduction, which is making me feel good through the day that I matter and that you appreciate the little and big things I do for us and for our family. And then I'm making sure you feel the same way. So that attention to detail, that attention to each other, the simple appreciation, basically, I call it treating each other like a friend, which we are not that great at doing with our long-term partner. We'll often talk to them in a way we would never speak to the 7-Eleven clerk. We generally wouldn't say, oh, for goodness sakes, hurry up, we got go, to go to a stranger in a, in a retail setting. But we'll say that to our sweetheart. That's not appreciative. That's not kind, and it's not friendly, and it's not seductive. So the little kindnesses through the day really matter, outside of the bedroom, through the day on an ongoing basis. Now, people have heard that before, and they're like, yeah, yeah, I know that. And I challenge them to say, okay, but are you doing it you know there's a lot of things we know we know we should eat more kale but are you doing it (laughs) get her done so um, the second thing is inside the bedroom and here um, i gotta say that the the research is pretty depressing on uh you know in longer term relationships how long a sexual encounter lasts and it's, it's roughly seven minutes and i mean seven minutes from the elbow in the rib cage to the snore we're talking seven minutes the whole whole enchilada that's really underachieving people. We can do a lot better than that. And oh, it, yeah. It, 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 but but people don't on average. That's the sad thing. So what I tend to say is, look, I say that the typical North American sex life, it's basically nipple, nipple, crotch, good night. That's it. I mean, it's a routine. We got this thing going down. We do it. It doesn't mean it's bad. It's just typical, unimaginative and has very little seduction in it. So Again, people may have heard this, but I challenge them, are you doing it? When's the last time you kissed the back of your lover's knees? When's the last time you really had a full body exploration? No, not each and every time that you're sexually uh, joyful together, but bringing some time and attention and imagination to the encounters again, the way we did earlier on. Maybe not the first few earlier ons with a new partner, because those are awkward and weird, but when we got our groove going on, yeah. we usually explored a lot more. We tickled their feet, we played around, we just had more imagination and more fun. That's really where the seduction matters. I think the word seduction has that implication. We seduce to get into bed and then you know the work's all done. It's like no 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 no.
1: <laughs> Closing the escrow, I like to
4: there you go. I like that. I, I don't like it as a practice, but it's a good phrase to capture, unfortunately.
1: The practice yes, that happens. yes, yes, yes. You know, and, and the concept of foreplay uh, as being these tiny, random acts of kindness and appreciation. I mean, I, I know with my partner, I can pretty much guarantee him a good time if he makes the bed and empties the dishwasher. You
4: know, know. and I, like, it's it's so silly. (laughs) It sounds so dang unromantic and people say it, it becomes almost this this cliche, but it's like, think about it. Those are acts of appreciation that you matter, that you're on his mind and that he's reliable in terms of archetypal patterns in a heterosexual relationship. uh, Women really respond to men that are reliable because if they didn't come home to the cave with some meat, you and the babies died. So the modern day equivalent of that can be unloading the dishwasher. Like I can count on my men. That That makes them kind of sexy to me,
1: yeah exactly, and let 's talk about how what we 're talking about translates to other uh, other forms of partnership whether it's a it's a heterosexual or a homosexual relationship i don 't think it matters much, but you may correct me on this. The human heart is the human heart, yeah, i don't think it matters.
4: Practically, at all. The only place it may play out a tiny bit is our kind of caveman genetics around certain archetypal needs in a female psyche and a and a male psyche. Those would play out in a female female or male male relationship in a, just a slightly modified way for those two people. So it, it the heart wants what the heart wants, and all of this applies the same way. It's more that the the partner in any partnership who's maybe more directive, more uh, ambitious, etc will need certain things in a deep subconscious level from their partner differently than the partner who's more nurturing, more home-based. It doesn't matter what uh, genitalia goes along with that patterning.
1: Yeah, exactly. The, the, the hardware actually is not where the sexuality is stemming from.
4: No, not at all. It's much more the heart, the mind, that, you know, all of it, the whole, the whole thing. And I don't mean in some over romanticized way. I mean, literally, we've got our physical urge, what I call sexual arousal. We've got our mental, psychological urges and needs, what I call sexual desire. And then we've got our emotional stuff. So you've got head, heart and groin. And this plays out in different ways for each of us. And in a longer term pairing, the trick is to try to keep all of those pretty alive and, and buzzing. So we don't just get a sweet, romantic friendship connection with our lover and a very dull and infrequent sexual life, but that we find a way to enliven that part as well and not have the emotional, psychological sweetness deaden it, which is uh, another very common issue that couples deal with in a longer term mating
1: That they become just friends without benefits. Yeah, or
4: occasional kind of boring vanilla benefits that are pleasant but not high on the priority and that one or both people are not highly driven to enhance. And I like to help people see that they can recapture that and recreate it using presence, using showing up. And, you know, frankly, if I could be so bold, getting off your butt and doing something about it, you know, Uh, effort in uh, results out like everything else in our life we prioritize and that matters to us. I love what you just said. Efforts in, results out. Love it. Yeah, yeah. It comes easily in the beginning, but that's thanks to a lot of biochemistry and other stuff. And then we got to do a little bit of efforting to make it worthwhile. But we do that in everything else that matters too.
1: Well, when you look at anything that we want to achieve in life it requires some level of practice or training in order to reach mastery. And the, the, being in a relationship and being in a successful um, sexual relationship is the same. Yeah, very much so. I like to
4: teach that with the concept of treating your relationship like a hobby. So we don't have to work on our relationship, which is like one of the most off-putting phrases in the English language to most of us. But the idea is with a hobby, think about what a hobby means. It means we take time for it. We do it because we wish to. We don't have to. We prioritize it, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and we learn. We study a little bit. We consult a pro. We figure out how to do it differently to grow the best roses on the block or whatever. And if we can bring that mentality to our love relationship, we're cultivating it as a hobby, not as a, something we've got to work on. It yeah. gives us it gives a different approach, and it really can. Uh, Really reframe it for people that they start thinking, okay, this week, where are we going to block out time for ourselves romantically, sexually, just to go be together um, and, and make it a fun thing we look forward to instead of something we feel we're neglecting and we feel badly about?
1: I think there's something else that we should point out that happens when we do a hobby, that anything that we're passionate about hobby-wise, we, we find ourselves in that flow state Where we lose track of time and space, and we're just enraptured by what we're doing. Beautiful. That is, I mean, sexuality at its peak, I think, when we're talking about happiness and sexuality with our partner, that is what I think you're, you're, you're getting at.
4: Yeah. That flow state is a beautiful way to describe the state of mindful loving or mindful sexuality where everything else settles away. It it goes into the background and we're really in flow with what's happening now. Laughing over dinner with you, making love with you, walking on the beach with the dogs, but we're there. We're present. That's another definition for that flow state and it, it captures it really beautifully.
1: Yeah, and there, no other space exists in that moment because there's no other, no, nowhere else to be. Yes. And nothing matters more than
4: this, which means we fully inhabit it. It's more sparkling. It's more bright. The colors are brighter. And I'm being literal here. When we're more mindful and in touch with the present moment, our senses are brighter. We really taste the food instead of tasting it while we gab about something else. And that in love and sexuality and in paying attention to our beloved
1: profoundly light things up. We are nearly out of time, and I want to give our listeners uh, some information where to reach out and connect with you. You've got several courses and offerings on your website at www.drcherylfraser.com. And there's a cute little thing on Cheryl's website where you can get Love Bites, and that's B-Y-T-E-S, and and get uh, updates from her and words of wisdom from her. On your programs, you've got The Awakened Lover, Become Passion, you've got The Love school that is something that is is happening about now or will be happening and your book right on mindful sexuality, which is going to be coming out in 2017. Yes, that's the plan. And uh, lots of
4: great stuff debuting in 2017, including an online program. That'll be love school that couples can do from home uh, live with me and uh, and really bring this work into their relationship and their lives, because that's what matters is that we actually apply it. I mean, blah, blah, blah. We're giving some great ideas here, but I want people to apply them and really discover for themselves
1: how to fall in love over and over with the same person. Wonderful. Once again, the website is www.drcherylfraser.com. On Facebook, Dr. Cheryl Frazier with a hyphen between the words. And on Twitter, that handle is at Dr. Cheryl Frazier. Thank you for being with us, Cheryl. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my amazing guests today, Dr. James Pawelski, Susie Pileggi-Powelski, and Dr. Cheryl Frazier wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day.
0: Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, kbuuradiomalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.